so many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. of the box meet people through their music on fbi hello hello i'm vindy mutiara and you're tuned into fbi radio 94.5 fm streaming online dab or wherever you prefer to enjoy your podcasts welcome to out of the box a space dedicated to exploring the deep connection between someone's record collection and the narratives that have woven the fabric of their life. Today, my guests and I are speaking on stolen land, specifically in so-called Redfern. This locale where we work and broadcast stands as a haven of resistance and community for many First Nations peoples. It holds the historic significance of being the birthplace of black theater and protest, where for generations, songs and stories have been crafted and performed. Let's always acknowledge that this land was, is, and always will be Aboriginal land. Today is a very, very special day, as I have the privilege of being joined by the remarkable Dr. Catherine Keenan. For those who may not know of her, Catherine is a multi-talented creator and wordsmith and has not only been a friend and an educator, but also a motivator to many. Her impactful contributions have resonated across Australia, particularly through her role as the co-founder and executive director of Story Factory, a not-for-profit creative writing centre that has significantly impacted young minds aged 7 to 17 from under-resourced communities. And in Catherine, the well-deserved 2016 Local Hero Award for her dedication to language, literature and education. And prior to her inspiring work with Story Factory, Catherine held the esteemed positions of former journalist, arts writer, and literary editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. Today, we'll delve into the events that have shaped Catherine's life and led to these incredible achievements. Thank you so much for joining me, Catherine. It's so lovely to be here, Vindy, and quite strange for you to call me. <laughs> I know, I know. A little, a little backstory. I have known Catherine Kath. Just Kath. Is Should great. we just call? It, just keep it yeah. low key, Kath. For since I was twelve, I'm twenty one now. Standing in front of you talking to you behind this mic and it feels so strange because I remember being in year six and I was also a student at Story Factory and I'd always seen your face bop around but you were always behind the scenes. It was mostly me working with Richard Short, storyteller-in-chief and I think as the years progress I got to know you a bit more and it's just amazing to even have this conversation right now and I'm so excited. Um, and that's exactly how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> this is really, really nice to be here, Bindi. As we dive it deeper into the show, I definitely want to tap into those remarkable achievements that we just spoke about more deeply. But before we do, I'm curious to learn about your early life in Perth. What was life like for you growing up? Yeah, gosh, um, it was really nice. I had a really 
happy childhood in a sort of part of Perth that's very suburban and we went to a school that we walked to and we, there were 70 kids in the whole school. It was a small Catholic school, so we knew all of them and their brothers and their sisters and their mum and their dad. And so it was a very kind of like close community, which I always feel kind of very lucky to have had. Were you diving into sports, the arts, <laughs> you the writing? I was I need not to... diving into sports. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I had to put it at first. Um, no, I was absolutely shocking at all forms of sport from a very young age, uh, which was a, which is difficult in Perth because everyone plays sport all the time. Uh, but I I read a lot. I was a sort of I constantly constantly read. Were you, what were you reading at that age? I would literally read anything. Like my mum talks about how it was really annoying because when I was quite little in the car, I would just read all the signs. Like as we were driving around, I would just read them all, every single one. Um, I read uh, anything that, like any kid's book I can get, I'd read the back of the cereal packet. I'd read like Jeffrey Archer because that would be on my mum and dad's shelves. Or I remember reading The Thorn Birds when I was quite young. Like I would just, whatever I could find. Like there were not like... My parents were not sort of massive readers, but there were always sort of books around, so I could kind of pick things up that were probably wildly inappropriate, but pretty fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Were you spending most of your childhood creating stories as well as reading, creating short stories? I did do a fair bit of writing and stuff like that, like mostly through school and things um, and little projects and stuff. But um, I probably... I I spent more time reading, I think. It's so crazy because when you just said the cereal packet reading the cereal packets, that was also a huge, like, core memory in my childhood. And um, I think for me, like, reading out signs in the car with my parents was also another memory. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask, did you, were there any defining moments in your childhood that shaped your desire to write after reading all those, like, extensive books? That's interesting. I, so I went, I was quite young when I, I, I went to high school. I was, quite, I was quite young, and I had um, I had lots of really, really good teachers. I feel qu- really quite lucky that I had them in primary school and also in high school. And I remember year eight was the first year of high school then, and I had an English teacher who certainly talked to me. And I'm pretty sure she called my mum in or somehow was talking to my mum about an essay that I'd written and how good it was and how I should keep right. Like, and I kind of that was really, I really remember that as a moment of feeling oh this might be a thing that I can do or a thing that I'm good at like that was kind of really important to me and I've always kind of remembered like what a good teacher can do you know how much a good teacher can kind of make you believe in yourself you know or sort of open up some possibility that you didn't necessarily consider before. We're doing a jump start here yeah but I know in your name you have the title of doctor Mm. representing your doctorate in English literature from Oxford University. What made you want to move to England to pursue that at Oxford? Yeah, so um, I went to, I did my first degree at um, the University of Western Australia in Perth, and um, but I was only 19 when I finished. So I had a kind of sense of like, well, I've got time on my hands here, you know, like I can sort of muck around for a bit. So I went traveling to Europe. I did this sort of normal backpackery thing um, and then ran out of money. And so <laughs> then went to England and had to get a job. And I didn't really want to go to London. I, that sort of seemed a bit big for someone from Perth. So I ended up 
sort of going to Oxford and just working and living in Oxford. And that's when I really felt like, oh, wow, this is great. I would really like to come here. And so I applied and I got in. But because I was a, a foreign student, um, the, it's really, really expensive. And so I, there was no way we could afford it. So I then um, ended up going back to Perth when I was, I don't know, 23 or 24 or something and doing my honours year. And then I applied to get a scholarship and then I got a scholarship and I went back. And that's when I did the PhD. Yeah. What was the transition like moving from your hometown to England? Was that intense or a very cathartic feeling? Well, my, my dad's English and so I, I had a British passport and I had relatives who live in the north, like in um, South Shields, which is just near Newcastle. Um, so that kind of felt sort of home-ish or home-like, you know, like it was really nice to see them. I'd never met them before. And so all of that felt kind of not familiar but sort of relatable whereas Oxford was like being on Mars at first because it was just so (laughs) different and so unlike my experience of university in Perth or just of my experience of the world and I think particularly because Perth you know is, is so incredibly isolated and being somewhere like Oxford like I just couldn't believe this this feeling that you were in the centre of things or, you know, there were so many people coming to visit, all these people that you would just, like no one ever came to Perth, like ever. (laughs) Considering that you were at a school that had 70 pupils, that would have been a crazy, like, change for you. There were so many. Like I remember like Jacques Derrida came and Yasser Arafat came and like Tony Blair would come. Like like, people would just be coming all the time and, you know, like it was so – that just seemed extraordinary to me, like this kind of sense of the privilege that you have and all, you know, just to be in these libraries that are hundreds of years old with all these books and, you know, just these things that were sort of so far beyond anything that I had experienced as when I was growing up. Yeah, I, I can imagine the libraries. The, li- the I've libraries seen the images amazing. and it is insane. It feels like a Disney movie. It's also this very funny thing that when you get your library card from the Bodleian, they sort of go in and you pick it up and you have to talk to this librarian and you have to actually make this declaration. I think you actually have to raise your hand where you have to promise that you won't set the place on fire. No <laughs> you know? way! You have to say, like, I promise I will not damage the books. I promise I will. You know, it's just like this sort of, it's like a real, like, it's a, I'm sure they've been doing it for hundreds of years but it was like you were on your honor to to not like a core tradition oh my goodness that must have been (laughs) such a weird feeling there are all kinds of weird things there oh my gosh were there I know we've talking we've spoken about the positive parts were there Mm. any specific downs that you had to overcome during that transition or even being at the place um I mean, like writing a PhD is pretty hard. Yeah, I was <laughs> kind of, I had its yeah. low points, that's for sure. That also that felt really, really hard at times. Um, I, I always remember, like at the when I'd first got there, and they give you all this kind of you know stuff to read about courses and blah blah blah. And then there's a sort of alternate, like the student union handbook, you know, the one that's written by students. And I remember like sitting in my little like single bed in my sort of garret room at college, and reading it. And the first sentence of the pamphlet was like, um, "You are reading this, and you are thinking that one you are the one person who fell through the net and should not be here." And I was like, "Oh, oh my god, god, how do they know?" <laughs> you know, where's the cameras? <laughs> oh my god. 
Um, so you've got it's really hard to, you know, because you're just surrounded by incredibly smart people, and particularly the people who've been through Oxford as undergrads are very, very good at talking and sort of that intellectual sort of jousting things, and which I was not good at, and so learning to kind of battle through that and not sort of shrink from it was, was kind of was a bit of a challenge what are some of your top pieces of writing that have influenced oh, you i know oh that's such gosh, a basic really question but it's like <sighs> i want to know now gosh there are so 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 many i mean i did like part of my doctoral thesis was on um gabriel garcia marquez mm-hmm. and 100 years of solitude specifically um and i feel like those books have really meant a huge amount to me and really um sort of made me think differently about what books could do and what they the ways in which you could tell stories to be able to write like I don't know Elizabeth Strout or to be able to write like you know Vikram Seth it would just be amazing you know so it's I, I just love kind of being absorbed in the writing of a really great writer. Are there any key collections in art that have done the same for you because I know you were an arts editor and mm. literary ed- editor at Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, yeah, like I, um, I, th- I th- art has meant a lot to me at different times and one of the great privileges of the job at the Herald was that you got to interview people who made art, you know, and I found that was fantastic, you know, and I, and I remember once, you know, you get to do all these great things like I remember Hetty Perkins showing me around the, the art gallery of New South Wales and introduced you know talking me through some of the Aboriginal art that was in there you know and that was in that's an incredible privilege and really exciting um, and even at Story Factory we've done a couple of um, art auctions where artists who have been just incredibly generous have gifted us artworks that we've auctioned off to raise money and I always really enjoyed that I really enjoyed talking to them all and you know interacting with them and just sort of witnessing their great you know artists are the people who you know they, they have they are so often don't have that much to give and yet they are so incredibly generous they I found and that was really humbling well speaking of art yeah when I had asked you about your chosen songs you mentioned a 27-minute long <laughs> track by Icelandic contemporary artist Ragnar Kartensen and the All-Star Band, quoting in your email a very obscure one. Can you tell me why you chose this song? <laughs> I can. I have a good reason for choosing that. So it is from um, an amazing artwork called The Visitors, um, which is a nine-screen um video installation which I saw in San Francisco in I think 2017 was at the San Francisco um, Museum of Contemporary Art there and it's such a great artwork and it's basically um, Ragnar the artist and a bunch of his friends some of whom were musicians were in bands like Sigur Ross and Mum and, um, and they are in this sort of beautiful but slightly ramshackle house in upstate New York called Rockaby Farm and they created Ragnar and some of the musicians created this 
song, which is very repetitive. It has very very similar lines that are just played over and over again. And he does a whole lot of artworks that just play with repetition. Um, and they're all in different rooms. So in the nine different screens of this artwork, you see, you know, this woman in this room or this man in this room and, you know, Ragnar, like literally in a bathtub in the nude with a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> but they all have headphones on and they're all listening to each other and they all play this song. And so as you are, so you're in this dark room with these very large screens all around and you can kind of move between them and look at different people as they're doing this. And then towards the end in the video screens, they all kind of come together and they join in this room in the house. And then finally they kind of all come together and walk off into the distance. And the lovely thing about that is that when you are with people watching it so you've got them all looking at different screens but you all in the end go towards this one screen where you're watching all of the people together and then you watch them go off into the distance so um, it's just a really really great and uplifting and beautiful artwork about music and friendship and joy so I would highly recommend it to anyone I know it's a weird song to choose but it's great <laughs> I listened to the 27 minute ballad and I was so mesmerized. It's and amazing. The backstory isn't it? is so beautiful. Yeah. Um, so let's dive into it. This is The Visitors by Ragnar Cardinson and the All Star Band. And you're listening to Out of the Box with Bindi Mutiara. You're listening to Out of the Box with Bindi Mutiara. That ballad was The Visitors by Ragnar Cardinson and the All-Star Band, a beautiful song chosen by my very special guest, Dr. Catherine Keenan. But we've been just Kath, just Kath, Kath this show. (laughs) It's about a remarkable story that uh, involves a homage to friendship and joy, but also an ode on longing and loss from Cardinson's video installation, The Visitors, that you had seen when you were in San Francisco. Whilst that song was playing off air, I asked you, had you lived overseas before? And you said you hadn't until England, but then now you've lived in Venezuela for three to four months, as well as Jakarta for a year. Why were you living in Jakarta? I want to know more about (laughs) that, because I'm Indonesian myself. And what was life like there for you? So I was like 21 and same age you are now, in fact. (laughs) And I, when I was living in England before I went to Oxford when I was just hanging out there, um, I thought that it would be good to become like a teacher of English as a second language. And you can do, I think you still can, like a sort of four week intensive teaching course. Um, And you can do that in lots of places all around the world, including Cairo. So I thought, well, why don't I go and do it in Cairo? Like I could have done it in England, but you've got to, it's really intense. So you've got to live for a month and everything, which is pretty expensive in England if you're not working. Whereas you could go to Cairo and live in Cairo for a month, a lot cheaper. So I went and did that, which was really great. And kind of my, the first, the first time I'd ever been involved in teaching, which I kind of really liked. And then I had to get a job and I had no idea how to get a job. And it was also, it was, um, 
sort of around Christmas time, which most of the jobs in Europe run summer to summer. So it was a bad time to be trying to find a job in sort of December, January. And then someone who was on the course with me had worked at a school in Jakarta and he was like, I can probably get you a job there. So I was like, okay, great, let's do that. Were you able to learn Bahasa during that I, time? I, I was never very good, but I was okay. Sedikit, sedikit. <laughs> it's such a long time ago. It's so, like, honestly, I, I was, I had a very halting, not very good grasp of it. I did do some lessons and, you know, um, but I also worked at school teaching English. So I spent my whole day speaking English, which was not very helpful. Yeah. Were there any specific... Uh, memories in Jakarta that are like core memories now for you? Mm, Gosh, I suppose it was the first time I was really immersed in a culture that was very different from my own, you know, because England didn't feel that different to me and obviously the language and everything, whereas this was really interesting to be somewhere that was, you know, where I was completely you know, had to sort of find my way around it. And I, I found it, I found that really kind of fascinating and interesting and um, kind of the longer I was there, you know, the more you realise you don't know, the, the more you realise there is to understand and sort of about what was different um, in a place like Jakarta to where I'd grown up. And so, yeah, I, I really, I think that was a really interesting and uh, sort of, informative experience for me yes especially move yeah moving from australia to england and then taking that time in jakarta must have been a huge culture shock for you yeah yeah like i really because i was i mean i was such a sort of doofus but i i remember one thing i do remember is i remember arriving like with a straw hat you know because i was like (laughs) i'm going to the tropics you know I'll, i'll have a hat and i remember getting out of the airport and there was a kind of chicken wire fence and there were just all these faces up against the chicken wire you know oh, i was just, just peering at yeah, you just like, like who is staring at every people and it was so it just i mean the disparities in wealth in a place like that are so you know so stark and so um yeah just so sort of hard to get your head around with all these experiences traveling around the world from Venezuela, Jakarta, England and Australia, did that have a prominent role in you being a journalist? I don't know, really. I mean, I think it, I, you know, I mean, it's a sort of cliche, but it does, you know, traveling does open you up to sort of more possibilities and kind of how big the world is. And so I think and it sort of, I think, probably made me more curious than I was before. But the journalism thing was a bit because I, you know, I think I said that uh, I thought I wanted to be an academic, and then I decided that I didn't want to, and then I had to work out, oh my God, well then what else am I going to do, you know, with a doctorate in literature? And I was just kind of lucky, really, that I got a job at the Herald because I didn't have any journalism experience, and I just had this very vague sense of. I would like to be in the media, but I had like no idea what that would be or how to do it or anything. I was just kind of lucky. What was that like working at the Sydney Morning Herald? It was great. You know, it's great. And I mean, I always say this, but it's an amazing thing to get paid to write all day. You know, like that's great. And you also get this great privilege of 
just being able to sort of walk into people's lives and ask them questions, you know, people who are doing really interesting things. And, you know, mostly I interviewed writers and, and artists and actors and directors and okay, not so many musicians, but occasionally musicians and, you know, philosophers. And, you know, it was really, it's a really, I found all of that really interesting and really great. I can't believe you've interviewed musicians as well as philosophers not, not many not, not many? many no because there, there were kind of there were the music specialists at the paper and i would i mean you know i think interviewed tina arena <laughs> tina arena oh my gosh you're downplaying that that is an icon right there Kath. <laughs> well I, it was terrible because i remember my recorder forgot to record like my recorder broke so that was that was really difficult oh, <laughs> it hardly ever happened to me but it happened to be talking to tina arena um yeah, but I, I really liked interviewing writers because I found writers obviously have kind of interesting things to say yeah. and they're used to, you know, that you're interviewing them in words, which is their main medium. So they, it's very rare that a writer doesn't have anything interesting to say, whereas sometimes with actors I would find like that's not necessarily the way that they're best at expressing themselves is through talking about their work or the, the play that they're doing, they, you know, and so sometimes that could be a bit that was a bit harder trying to sort yeah. of figure out what to say. I mean, it's interesting trying to wrap your head around an entirely different type of artistic practice, you know, like I, I'm so not an actor. And so trying to think about how that feels or what what different ways that gives you to access the world, I think is quite interesting. I want to move the conversation into Story Factory. I feel like... That's like a diamond encrusted in gold for you. <laughs> that has been like one of your biggest life's work. It has, yes. Um, you're the executive director and co-founder of Story Factory. And can you tell me what was the thought process behind creating Story Factory, specifically in 2012? Like what, what was happening in 2012 for you to pursue that? Yeah. I think, I mean, there's sort of a personal answer and then a more sort of organisational. So like personally, I'd been at the Herald for 12 years. I'd, I'd been, being literary editor was my sort of dream job. And then after a year, I had a baby and had to stop and all of that. So I'd sort of gone back to writing again. But I was probably by that stage, you know, I kind of feeling a little restless, I think. And also I had two small kids, which is pretty important and you know like I, I read to my kids a lot and they grew up with books everywhere and but it makes you think about what if you're a kid that doesn't have that you know what is the impact of of not growing up with books and you know you realize sort of watching young kids acquire literacy is a sort of extraordinary thing because it's such a sort of fundamental and you know it just changes your world once you can communicate properly so that's kind of what was in the background, I guess. And then the sort of specifically the thing that happened was I watched a TED talk by Dave Eggers, the novelist and writer, um, talking about the place that he set up called 826, well, 826 Valencia and now 826 National, which is a writing centre for kids in San Francisco. And it was it's a really great TED talk. I'm sure it's still there online. It's been watched by millions of people. Um, and I'm sure that I am one of many, many, many people who watched it and thought, wow, that's a great idea. You know, like, I wonder if I wonder if we could do something like that. But I had a very, I still have a very good friend called uh, Tim McGregor, who was working with me at the Herald. And I sent it to him, you know, in that way of like, oh, look at this. <laughs> um, and I think because Tim is very 
um, very practical and very good at just doing things. Um, he kind of he was the one who said, "Why don't we? Why don't we see if we can make something like that here?" Because there was, you know, I mean, I sort of I feel like a crack crocodile saying this, but there are. There are so many things you can do with your kids. If you want to do an after-school program with your kids in the arts, you can do 500 like drama courses or painting or music or all those kinds of things, but not writing. You know, there are very few places you can go and write. Um, and at the time, uh, all of the ones you had to pay for to some extent. So there was a, a sort of barrier to entry. So we always, we have always made our programs free for the kids and we wanted to have a place that you could go if you, yeah, that would, it didn't matter if you didn't have enough money, you could come and you could write and you could explore writing as something really creative and interesting and, and an art form and not, not just kind of learning to spell or, you know, where to put your commas, that kind of thing. Yeah. No, I, I think you're so right in that with Story Factory, it's, I feel like when, personally, when you're in school, all you're taught is um, how to write an essay introduction persuasive writing writing, (laughs) what is good and what is bad and i think story factory it's this place where it's quite cathartic i think writing can be sometimes reduced and i we work with amazing teachers and that we do and we work with incredible teachers who really do you know try and share that passion with their kids and really try and give them space to be creative and really encourage that so I, I, I you know I, I and it's very hard on teachers they've got so much stuff to be trying to cover so I suppose like for us though we are lucky enough to exist outside of the system in a sense so we don't have the same curriculum points that we have to hit and we don't have to mark kids work and that is a really can be a once you let go of that idea of being great that can offer a freedom for a lot of kids who might not have experienced success with writing until that point but who very often we find have amazing ideas and you know are super creative and have a whole lot of things inside that they do want to get out and you know that cathartic thing is really true you know writing has been used for you know for thousands of years to kind of help you figure out what you think and what you feel and what that means and I you know I still think that is a hugely hugely important thing. Have there been any specific moments within Story Factory that you have just been like like wow this this is it and I I, like you just this feeling of like awe and constant like oh my gosh this is this is happening this is the center that Tim and I started in 2012 yeah like because Tim and I went over to San Francisco to because so many people wanted to were loved this idea of the writing center for kids that so many people wanted to kind of set up one of their own so they actually ran a course where you could go over I think it was only in one day or something we went for a bit longer but um, so there was this one day course about how you set one up and Dave was in there and I remember someone said, you know, what advice would you give us, Dave? And he was just like, keep it weird. <laughs> no, <laughs> Stop, nothing such, else. There are so, so, so many. I mean, every year we, we or you were in the very first group, we do a novella writing program and a poetry writing program. So they're both two courses which run for a whole year. So we have usually about 15 young people in high school who enrol and they write and publish their very own book. And which is 
like I, you know, I say this all the time, but writing and publishing your own book in a year would is like super hard for yeah. anybody of yeah. any age. But to do this when you're a teenager and you're still at school and, you know, often you're doing your HSC at the same time and you might have all kinds of other responsibilities within your family as well is like truly incredible. And so... We did it again, um, well, last year now, 2023. The very final event we have of the year is when we launch these, this year it was 29 books into the world that these young people have written. And they are such interesting and diverse books and they really kind of show the range of different things that, young people are interested in and watching them you know so we did it, the launch this year was at the University of Sydney it was the first time we'd done it there and so we have we they have all the young people there plus all their families and friends and then they stand up and they read from their work and there's always like someone gives a speech on behalf of the novella writers and someone gives a speech on behalf of the poets and whenever that happens and I hear them talking about what it has meant to them to become a published writer and what it has meant to be part of this community of writers. And that's a really big part of it is this community of writers that they feel part of. That is when I always feel like, oh, wow, this this is, this this is, is great. This is really <laughs> happening. Um, before we chat about more Story Factory, I want to tap into a song. And we're going to go back to the UK and dance ourselves to some new order. (laughs) Why did you choose this song from them? Um, So when I was growing up in Perth, which is like incredibly hot, um, I was sort of went through a kind of mini goth phase because I was very pale. Uh, So at least I had that going for me. That was the only way in which I had that going for me. and so I was very into, you know, the cure and the church and various things. And um, and I remember Blue Monday was such a sort of different song to hear at that time and such an exciting song. And I just loved it so much. And then um, so that I just loved it then. But then also when I was in England and it was kind of at the, when dance music was really big and that was when I first got into dance music. But it always made me go back to the to Blue Monday, basically. Well, let's get into it. This is Blue Monday by New Order on FBI Radio, a song chosen by my guest, Dr. Kathleen Keenan, here on Out of the Box. That was Blue Monday by New Order on FBI Radio, a song chosen by my guest, Dr. Catherine Keenan, here on Out of the Box. Kath, we were just talking um, off air about dance culture, electronic music, the places that you were going to in England when you were listening to Blue Monday by New Order. Are there any other artists similar to New Order that really had like an impact on that time of your life in your 20s just growing up and you know yeah like I it's too it's too generic for me like I just like it was sort of dance music was this sort of revelation and whatever was just playing at that time really like I don't there's not sort of specific artists in quite the same way um but 
uh, you know, going out and dancing was just so much fun. I wanted to ask you, I know writing has always been a influential uh, space for you growing up. Had you aspired to be a writer? Because I know you mentioned that in like high school, your teacher had said like caught up your mom and said that this essay is really good and you thought that that could you could be doing that for a living was there any other aspirations that you really wanted to be when you were growing up I wanted to be all sorts of things when I was growing up I wanted to be like a marine biologist at one point and all kinds of like weird things I have often thought about writing something more long form but I don't have anything right now and I still I still try and do bits of journalism, even um, it's it's a bit hard with Story Factory, but I try and do sort of freelance things now and then. And, you know, I got to write a great, oh, a really fun essay to write a couple of, well, like the year before last, actually, for the Griffith Review about literacy and stuff like that. So I quite like being able to take dives into things and then craft a, a non-fiction piece yeah. out of that. With the year of poetry and the novella programs, when you've been in those spaces and hearing the stories come to life after a year's work from these kids, has that influenced your perspective on your own children? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it does. It does make me respect young people, I think. It really kind of gives me that. I feel very lucky about that and I feel like very lucky to be able to interact with young people talking about things that really matter to them. In a, in a Bilal and Kev really run the programs now and they are really great at creating a, a safe space and a space in which people, young people really feel they can be themselves and can talk about what is important to them. And so, you know, I'm just an observer, but it, I sort of benefit from that sometimes in the conversations that I can have. And I, I feel really lucky with that. I have two kids, one of whom really loves reading and writing and one of whom does not. <laughs> so, But he's good at other things. Yeah. Um, I wanted to go back to Story Factory and I wanted to ask, where do you see Story Factory in 10 years? I know that's oh quite a hard gosh. question because it's always constantly changing. It's constantly go- yeah. growing. Yeah, that gosh, that is such a hard question because I couldn't really imagine where it would be now. Like if you asked me this 10 years ago, it would have been very hard to imagine where it is now. I, don't, I mean, I think, you know, what we're always just trying to do is to have as much impact as we can on the greatest number of kids and to make sure that we're reaching the young people who can most benefit from it. You know, I mean, you know, Bindi, but, you know, there's such a sort of massive disparity in the way that um, young people are educated in New South Wales. And if you go to a school in an under-resourced community, your, your school will have fewer resources. You know, you would, the teachers we work with are so stretched. And, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of other issues and it causes these big gaps in literacy, which is, you know, up to sort of three years, um, which is massive and really unfair and means that uh, young people don't get the chance that they should have to be the best version of themselves and to do all the things that they could. So... Um, we would just want to be doing as much as we can to try and help young people get over that because writing such a big you know if you can't write well you can't do well in your education you know like it's such an important and foundational skill so helping kids to become confident with writing and to love writing has all these massive flow-on effects that we want to really focus on let's jump into a song this is by the go-betweens tell me about it growing up in perth as i said before like very few people or bands ever came to visit 
Um, and one of the first bands that I, or actually the first really like proper gig that I remember going to was a go-betweens gig at um, Murdoch University in Perth. And it was also where I met my first boyfriend, which um, I <laughs> went out with for many years. So I just, it was always a very special, they always had a special place in my heart. And they're also just an incredibly awesome band. Um, and then when I was at the Herald, one of the few times that I interviewed musicians was I interviewed Lindy Morrison from from the Go-Betweens. And so it was so nice to go over there and actually meet her and go to her house and have a chat to her. And yeah, so that was kind of really nice. How was the interview? What was it like? Well, it was actually, it was interesting because Lindy was like running, oh, I'm going to get this wrong, but she was running for a, like political office I can't remember if it was a local council or a state parliament or something so it was it was sort of outside of her musical career but she had all these things that she was very passionate about which was great but the thing that I really remember is um, sitting in her house and interviewing her and then I must have gone to the loo or something in the middle of the interview and when I came I didn't realize this until later when I listened back to the interview but when I was gone she sort of picked up the recorder and she said oh, dear, I'm feeling really nervous about this interview. <laughs> I hope it's okay and put it back down, which I really loved. Oh, that's so fantastic. Let's get into it. This is Spring Rain by the Go-Betweens, a selection from you, Kath Keenan, here on Out of the Box. Spring Rain by the Go-Betweens, a selection from my guest here on Out of the Box. Speaking about books and writing, do you find writer's block very difficult? Yeah, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. How, yeah. How, do you, how do you navigate that through it? Well, I mean, the good thing about being a journalist is you just kind of can't believe in writer's block. You just <laughs> have to do it, you know, like yeah. so you just have a deadline. And so I think I'm. I, the downside is that it makes you – like I'm very dependent on a deadline. I find that I actually can't get sort of too deeply into things unless I know that it has to be done, you know. So um, I wish I was better at that. Other people are better at that. Um, but, yeah, it does it, – it, That's a, it's great training just to feel like you just got to keep to it. It doesn't matter if you write as well. You, you've just got to do it. Yeah, you just got to go yeah. through it completely. Yeah, just keep going. And, yep. yeah, yep. there's no stop. It might be crap, but – but at least it's there, the material is there. (laughs) This one is by Side of the Gym by The National. Can you tell me why you chose this song? I mean, I'm like massive The National fan. I really, really love them. And interestingly, they collaborated with Ragnar Kjartansson on an artwork um, called Sorrow, where they just played Sorrow over and over again their one song for six hours <laughs> which i've always wanted to see <laughs> um but uh yeah so i'm a massive fan generally i could have picked a million songs but this one i just really love for for the refrain you know i'm going to keep you in love with me for a while i think is such a it's just such a beautiful line and because it's um one of their gentler songs and yeah i just i just really like it 
Let's get into it. This is Side of the Gym by The National. You're listening to Out of the Box here on FBI Radio. My name is Bindi with Tiara, and stay tuned because we will be listening to one final song from your record collection, Kath, and it is a favorite of mine and a favorite of yours. We were just excited off air, so I can't wait to share to, I can't wait for we to share that song with you. You're listening to Out of the Box with Bindi Mutiara on FBI Radio 94.5 FM. A beautiful question that I would love to ask you is, why is storytelling as an art form so important, especially in this day and age where we are right now where what we're seeing like on the media as well as the news and what's been happening yeah great question i mean i think i think at any time storytelling is one of the the most fundamental ways that we understand the world you know like if if, if when you don't you know it, when things are happening in the world that you cannot make sense of I think you have essentially two ways of trying to understand that. One, you can do it as a metaphor, like, oh, it's like this, and then that gives you a framework, or you can tell a story around it. And so I think the telling of stories is is massively important for, for understanding the world, but particularly, I think, your own place within it and who you are and kind of connecting yourself to the world. I think you do that through story. Um, and I feel that that is particularly important at the moment because there's so much difficult stuff happening in the world and because and I know there's so much written about how we've become you know people of the image rather than the word but I think stories you you you'll never be able to get rid of stories stories are still super important you know and can be told in so many different ways through pictures or through words and stories are told in every culture and there is something about the human brain that is wired to stories and so we do not you know when we do our workshops with kids there is no difference now in the way that kids respond to stories than there used to be like there's still something about that that will always kind of hold your attention that is really beautiful and a beautiful answer to wrap our chat today Catherine Keenan Kath this is an interview I've thought about for years i wouldn't say maybe at age 12 but the seed was planted (laughs) and it was slowly massaged throughout the years and it feels genuinely quite uh surreal to hear and see this come to life and it's been a huge pleasure what song are we ending today with oh thank you well thank you so much for having me medina it's amazing to to be here with you um so we are ending with love story by taylor swift (laughs) and how calm are you a (laughs) swifty i am a swifty um i also have a daughter who's a massive swifty so it's very much a connection that i share with her i think taylor swift is very much bound up in that for me um there is also just something so I mean thinking about telling stories she's a really great storyteller in the songs but there is something so joyful about many of her songs that I just love and you know, we talk about this she's great to sing along to and so my daughter and I spend a lot of time in the car singing along to Taylor Swift and that is I would 
think of those moments as kind of high points in our relationship. <laughs> I feel like that's when we're really bonded and really close. It's really nice. Um, there's also a really great – have you watched The Bear? The TV yes, show, I the have. Bear? Yes, uh, with Jeremy two? Allen White. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but there is, there is a, an episode in the second season where Love Story is used – is is is, the, is yeah. in the soundtrack and is just so perfectly timed and just captures everything about the joy of Taylor Swift and the joy of singing along to Taylor Swift in the car. Oh my god! All I will say is Kami is Kami. Like, it's not Kami. It's with Richie. It's it. just a totally excellent piece of television. Yeah. But it is one of those moments where when that song kicked in, I just like punched the air on the couch. I was just like, Well, Kath, it's been like I said before, a huge pleasure. Let's dive into Love Story by Taylor Swift. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bindi. You're a great interviewer. Thank you. This is Love Story by Taylor Swift. You're listening to Out of the Box here on FBI Radio 